Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for that good news of the gospel, that you have sent your Son into the world to die for us and to rise again, ascend into heaven and care for us, even now, in every aspect of our salvation, our justification, our sanctification, and one day our glorification as well. All this you have done to the praise of your most wonderful name. Your gracious work in us um, is evident and growing. As we look back on our forefathers, our foremothers, as we look at the work you are doing in our, even in our own children and the next generation, we see your steadfastness and your, your steadfastness and your faithfulness over and over again. Despite our sins, despite our wanderings, you discipline us, you call us back, you teach and encourage us. Lord, we come to you this morning not as those who have all our lives all together and have earned your favor somehow, but as those who are sick and sinful and in need of your grace, in need of your life, your strength, your wisdom, in need of everything from you. We thank you for revealing yourself to us. We thank you for changing our hearts and giving us that heart of flesh. We thank you for giving us your spirit and ask that you would pour out your spirit yet again on us, that we might hear your word, receive it with faith, and follow you all of our days. We pray for your blessing on the reading and preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please turn with me now, uh, turn your attention to Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. Titus 1, 10 through 16. Um, remain standing if you're able. Otherwise, feel free to be seated. And let's hear God's word to us this morning. In the previous passage, Paul gave instructions to Titus. He told him to appoint elders in every town throughout Crete, and he described what those elders are to be like. He gave the qualification for those overseers. With that positive qualification, he now teaches that in in another way um, through a negative description of the world in which uh, these overseers are called to serve. It's a sort of anti-elder, you might say in a way, a a negative description of um, what kind of people he shouldn't appoint and also the the context in which the elders and overseers must serve and which we all live. So let's give our attention to it now. Titus 1 10 through 16, he says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, 
but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. As I looked back uh, over my life uh, this week and reflected on the times in which I had been rebuked sharply, um, it brought up unpleasant feelings. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, that same discomfort I felt uh, in those moments uh, was revisited uh, in my heart. I imagine that if you think um, about times in which you have been uh, rebuked sharply, that you likewise get a little uptight or cringe a little bit. It's not, un, not a comfortable or a pleasant thing. I also suspect that you remember them. Um, I remember the time that I, instead of walking home from school like I should have, I think it was in third or fourth grade or something like that, I decided to just go to a friend's house, uh, someone I didn't know. Uh, much, much later when I found my way home, um, hours after I should have been there, I remember my mom being very, very upset with me, going to somebody's house that I didn't know. It was a, not a very safe place. I got rebuked sharply, and I have always remembered that. I won't tell you all of the times <laughs> that I have been rebuked sharply, and you don't have to tell me all of yours, um, but um, they are not pleasant. They're not fun. Now, sometimes um, when leaders, when those who are in authority over us uh, rebuke us sharply, it's not deserved. Perhaps you've experienced those, those moments as well. Um, humans uh, do not always get it right. Sometimes people use their authority and their strength to be tyrants, to command and demand, to abuse, um, to teach and control and coerce. According to, as one way Paul puts it here, the commandments of men, um, things that are not, um, uh, and sometimes even just sinful things. And when that happens in our lives, we have to learn to be strong, um, to resist even um, when someone uh, commands us or rebukes us in something that they have no right to. Um, there ought to still be respect for authority and all of that. Um, nevertheless, we ought not to follow um, in away anyone if we're following away from the Lord. So while that is true and recognizing that that happens and we have to be discerning about that, we also have to be aware that not every rebuke is the rebuke of a tyrant. Um, not every time someone speaks strongly to us, they are doing it wrongly. And sometimes, I know for some of us, this is a, this is a hard teaching. Um, some of us have been wrongly taught that um, those who are called to lead and hear the specific instructions on those who are called to lead in the church uh, must never be anything um, but gentle. Now, Paul does tell elders uh, to correct in gentleness the love is described also by the Apostle Paul as being patient and 
kind. Um, Love often overlooks and isn't demanding. Nevertheless, this is also true, that love um, that love sometimes speaks very strongly. Love, time, love sometimes even speaks, as Paul says, sharply in a way that stings and hurts. Now, those who are called to be elders, of course, have to have a lot of wisdom, right? How do you know when to be patient and gentle and forbearing? And how do you know when to speak strongly and sharply and sternly? takes wisdom, right? It takes godliness. It takes knowing the Lord's will. It takes um, obedience to him and, um, well, wisdom. Not every situation is the same, and sometimes um, one moment calls for one thing and another moment calls for another. So this passage doesn't um, tell elders how to act in every situation, But it does tell elders that there are some situations in which this kind of work, this kind of sharp rebuke uh, is required. And that work is grounded not in their own will. It's not grounded in their own ways or their own uh, sense of power or entitlement. It is grounded in the work of the Lord who loves us. The scriptures say that the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. A father, uh, quoting from Hebrews or paraphrasing Hebrews, uh, even our earthly fathers discipline their children. You can know you're a child of your father in part by the discipline that you receive from him. In the same way, our heavenly father disciplines us, and it's one of the assurances even that we have that we are uh, his children. And that's important. The work that they do here is the work And the work that they are called to do here is the work of God. That is what they are called to do, and it's in that that they are to ground uh, their actions and their hearts. Likewise, those who receive, who are on the receiving end of church discipline, or even here very strong church discipline, rebukes, and these kinds of things, um, if we are ever on, on that side, on the receiving side of things, It's our job to look to the Lord, um, to look at his scriptures, to hear what he's saying, and to humble ourselves before him. In all of this, what we can see, I think, is this, is the Lord Jesus' work in the church in this way. Through discipline, he removes obstacles to the gospel. Through discipline, he removes obstacles to the gospel and those benefits of the gospel. Notice how Paul grounds the discipline. It all has to do with being sound in the faith. It has to do with what has been taught. The particular problem that is here, the reason for which these particular people have to be rebuked so sharply is they are pulling people away from that. What is the gospel? The gospel is God's work of free grace in our lives and in the world in which he proclaims to us Jesus Christ and the salvation that we have in him. A salvation that is not based on us or our works, but is based on him and his righteousness alone. A a salvation that is based on us looking to Jesus and the cross of Christ and saying, that's where all my hope is, that's where all my uh, life is, now and forever. 
That's the hope that we're all grounded in. That's what Titus is here, uh, is, is called to preach and to teach. And it's that gospel that produces lives and fruit that is fit for every good work. When the gospel comes into our lives, when we hear that word and our hearts are changed and we put our hope in Jesus, Jesus then, as we are connected to him, produces things in us. Do you remember the passage I read earlier from Ezekiel? What did he say? What did God say? I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes. Right? My, um, when I was growing up, there was a neighbor who had a tree. Half of the tree produced grapefruit and half the tree produced lemons. How did that happen? Well, it's because at some point, somebody had taken a, a branch, a lemon branch, and had grafted it onto that grapefruit tree. And the tree produced fruit. That lemon branch produced fruit because it was grafted in. It received its life from, uh, it received its life from that tree. The same is for us. We produce fruit because we have been grafted into Christ. If we're not in him, then what are we? A dead branch. <laughs> we're not going to produce anything. We are going to be unfit for any good work. We are not going to be zealous for righteousness. We are not going to love him, serve him, follow him. And that's a theme Titus will keep hammering over and over and over again throughout, or, or Paul will to Titus uh, throughout this letter. And it's so key for all of us to grasp this, that the righteousness that God wants us to walk in, the righteousness that he calls us to live in, live in, the righteousness that is a joy uh, to live in is produced through faith in Christ. It's produced through faith in Christ. It's part of our salvation. So what's happening here? As we look at the text, we see that the last times, the end times that Paul talks to Timothy about are, are here and remain with us because there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. He describes them again when he quotes one of the Cretans, a, a poet from the 500s BC, so much, much before Paul, who says, the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This is quite a description so far, right? Insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, evil beasts, liars, lazy gluttons. And what are they doing? What are these people doing? These people who don't match in any way the description that he just gave of elders, they are trying to be teachers. They are trying to um, be at work among the families and the households of the church. And they are upsetting them. Instead of doing the work of the gospel, which brings us together, which produces holiness, they are disturbing the peace. They are splitting people up. They are um, upsetting the households, upsetting these families. Moreover, they are doing it for shameful gain. Remember earlier in the descriptions for elders, we read in verse 7 that they must not be a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. 
Elders, those who are called to lead in the church, are not to be there for themselves, trying to accumulate things for themselves. But that's what these people were doing. So we see the description of them. We see the effect that they're having. And what's Paul's goal? Well, to stop the spread, <laughs> to stop the problem. He says in verse 11, they must be silenced. That's a strong, strong thing to say. Paul gives to Titus this command like, get to work. <laughs> Silence these people. Now, ultimately, you know, Titus is not to you, you know, literally put you know, socks in their mouths or bind up their jaws, right? He, uh, his power that God gives to him is not a power of coercion and force. The power that he gives to him is a power of the word. It is ministerial, which is to mean he only has what he has been given. And it is declarative, which means he doesn't use a physical force and these kind of things. He is called to use words as his means of silencing. And ultimately, that's going to be up to the the work of the Lord, right? As I said before, Titus and these elders that are going to be um, put into place and us today, right? We do this work because it's his work in us, his work working through us. And so ultimately, if Titus goes out and he does this work, he will have to trust the Lord for it, right? Nobody can make anyone do anything except for the Lord, and praise be to God for that, because on the one hand, we need to be protected from people that we can't control, but God can. We also need to be protected from ourselves that we can't control, but God can. Remember again that passage in Ezekiel where he says, I will take from you that heart of stone and put in you a heart of flesh. That's something that we're unable to do. But God is able to do. Again, you see, God is removing always, always obstacles to the gospel. Obstacles in us, in our own hearts, and obstacles outside of us that threaten us. Nevertheless, though God is doing this work, he uses means. He uses means. And what are his, what, who is his means here? It's Titus. And ultimately, these elders that will also be put into place. He says to silence them. He says to rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. We'll come back to that in a moment. Before we think about the, the results um, that he desires to have, notice um, he has one particular party in view, a particular group of people, and it's important to note this for a couple reasons. Who's the party? Who's the group of people that Paul has in mind? He says in verse 10, the circumcision party. Now this um, circumcision is a mark of the Jewish people, but Paul doesn't have in mind Jews here as, a, as an ethnicity. Um, uh, he has in mind a particular uh, philosophy or theology, people that were pressing a particular point. Jews and Gentiles were welcomed into the church fully. This is the, the grafting language God uses this in other places to describe these two people becoming one in him. The problem is what they were teaching. And we know that right from this passage and many others 
in the New Testament. There were people who were devoting themselves to Jewish myths, devoting devoting themselves to commanding other people uh, to be circumcised, to follow dietary laws, to follow uh, uh, the um, ceremonial law of the Old Testament. Now, why is this a problem? I think that's probably another sermon, so I won't go into it uh, in depth, but except to say that there were people who were trying to say, if you want to be a Christian, you need to go back under the law of Moses. You need to obey these things, not just because the law is good, but because without obedience to this law, this particular law, there is no salvation. You must be circumcised. You must follow the old calendar. You must follow the dietary laws. But the scriptures teach that these things are fulfilled in Christ. That those things, though good at their time and proper in their place, were a teacher to instruct them for a while, to instruct the church, and have since been removed. This is explained in lots of ways and in lots of places. Peter, for example, receives a vision. The Apostle Peter, who says, I won't eat any of these things. I will keep myself clean and pure. He receives a vision in which God says, shows him a bunch of animals which were, would have defiled him and said, eat of these things. I command you to eat of these things. We have a whole book called uh, Hebrews, which is all about this point about how the uh, old temple, how the old priesthood, how the dietary laws, how all of these things are fulfilled in Christ. Fulfilled in him, not just because he obeyed them, but because he is the reality to which they all pointed. As I mentioned earlier, I will have a Sunday school class following our fellowship time, and I'm happy to talk about this or any of these other things uh, more. But the point is, is that uh, Paul was very concerned that people were undoing the gospel by, putting, by trying to put Christians back under the law. The law is good, the law is called to be obeyed, but we are not saved by it. We are saved by faith and not by works. And so... This teaching, these teachings, some of which aren't even from the scriptures, Paul points out, um, are, 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 are destructive and destroying people, upsetting, um, upsetting the house. In all of this, we, see, we come to see this principle in play, a principle which always has to be in our minds and especially in the minds of our leaders, that the faith that has been once delivered, the faith that comes to us according to Jesus, the faith which is the profession of the gospel and the right relationship of the law to it, and all these things must be held firm. It is the source of strength. It is the source of our life. It is the rule that directs everything. And when we disconnect these things, It all falls apart. Because these people, Judaizers they are sometimes called, because these people, the circumcision party was seeking to disconnect these things and undo the gospel by putting people back under the law, were they holy as a result of it? 
This doctrine, this way of life, did it make them uh, honorable, holy people that were worthy to be followed? Paul says, look at them. (laughs) They're insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers. They talk, 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 and it comes to nothing. Their lives are, and their doctrine is proved by their works. Perhaps you have experienced this in your own life. Perhaps you have been this kind of person and you know these kind of people that are so demanding about the law, so strict and so requiring, not just of the things in Scripture, but adding all kinds of stuff to it. And all the time it's about what you should do and what you aren't doing and all of these kinds of things. And yet you look at their lives and it's a mess. That's what he's describing here. They profess to know God. It's all about God. It's all about holiness. It's all about this way of living. But they deny him by their works. In this, you see that Paul does care about works. In strengthening the gospel, in pushing the gospel, and in, in requiring the gospel to be at the center of our lives, he's not blowing off obedience, is he? He says, look what they're doing. They're denying him by their works. So God, so, and, that, and that because they are detestable and disobedient, they are unfit even for any good work. They even cannot produce good things because of who they are at their core. And who are they? Well, like all legalists, they, on the one hand, they profess to care all about the law, but what they really care about Their true God is not God, but it's their own self-righteousness. What they really care about is being perceived well by other people, earning uh, their favor with God, being the one that everybody looks to and says, wow, that one, that's so important. It's their own hearts, their own lives, their own pride that is at the core of everything. And that's what makes them detestable and disobedient because though they say they're about good works, they're ultimately rebelling. They're ultimately rebelling against God, against who he is, against his promises, against the Son, our Savior, Jesus. They say we don't need to depend on him or we don't need to fully depend on him. What we really need is to depend on ourselves and our ability to push ourselves to good works. That's why they're unfit. That's why they can't produce anything good, because their minds, their consciences are defiled, he says. That's what happens when you disconnect righteousness, the fruit, from the gospel. The gospel the word that is promised to us, the offer of free grace that we believe in, that's what produces the righteousness. That's what produces the good works. That's what makes us fit and ready and capable and producing good things that we are called to produce and must produce and will produce as we put our faith in Jesus. That connection, that corollary is the truth of God's word, and that's what must be held firm to. And that's what these teachers were dividing or or were teaching against. And that's why Paul speaks as strongly as he does. And that's why elders in God's church must also speak as strongly 
as Paul commands Titus to do. When people come into the church and begin to undo, unravel, and undermine the gospel, elders are required to speak strong. Maybe not right away, maybe not at the first moment of error. We've all got error in us. We've all got legalists in us. It's in me, it's in you, it's, something, it's part of the flesh. Right? The point isn't to be yelling at each other all the time. But when error manifests itself in this way, and notice in the strong way it's happening, not only do we see the results, right? They are actively upsetting whole families, households, possibly it even means churches there. They are insubordinate. The Jerusalem council had spoken on this matter. The apostles and elders came together, debated this, a decision was reached, and a message was clearly proclaimed to the churches. This is back in Acts 15. But just because a church council declares the word of God doesn't mean that everybody all of a sudden falls into line, does it? And that hadn't happened here. The gospel had been uh, strengthened and declared. The apostles and elders had done their work and said, no, it is not a requirement to become a Christian. Circumcision is not a requirement to become a Christian. Coming back under the Old Testament law is not a requirement to becoming a Christian. But yet there were people who said, we don't care about that. We don't care what the council said. We don't care what the word of God says. We are going to continue to teach what we want to teach. Insubordination, right? Remember when we talked about the qualifications of elders last week? One of the ones was that they, insubordination came up in the, as we thought about their um, relationship between them and their children. And I mentioned at that time that just because someone has some authority and a measure of uh, of, of power doesn't mean that they themselves are not required to submit. None of us is above the Lord Jesus Christ. No pastor, no elder, no deacon, no teacher, or no ordained person or lay person, no one is above the head of the church. And when the Lord Jesus Christ speaks, he speaks with authority, and he speaks and he commands, and we all must obey when the Lord Jesus declares to, himself, declares to the world and to us that I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. When we say, well, yeah, that's nice, but really I'm going to try and do some things in addition to that, it is rebellion. And when those who would, who would seek to be teachers of the gospel and teachers and leaders unto Jesus Christ would deny him in this way, it is insubordination. And so I mention this for a bunch of reasons, but one of them is to point out that in the instructions to elders here, the elders aren't supposed to be going about in any situation and any time they see error and being mad or something like that. The situation is extreme, and it warrants a strong reaction. So, I've embedded lots and lots of applications in, our, in the sermon so far. Um, to summarize some of them that we've thought of, 
uh, we've, uh, I've talked about so far. One of them is that we must see in all of this the Lord Jesus at work. Part of the good news of the gospel is that he promises to take care of us, and he's doing it. Imagine if he, remember, he, he, the, uh, Jesus says that he will go away, and he does. He, he goes away into heaven. Imagine that he goes away and then he just left us sort of willy-nilly to sort of (laughs) run the church on our own. It would be awful, right? But he doesn't do that. Instead, he promises to work in us and through us by his spirit to give us officers and elders and pastors, elders, deacons, shepherds, apostles, prophets, teachers to help us and to take care of us. And they're not always perfect. They are jars of clay, Paul calls himself and other ministers, But nevertheless, he is working through us, and that is a good thing. The Lord Jesus, we see in this, is at work. He is putting stewards over his household, people to watch it and protect it and keep it for him and for us. And when we see our leaders doing that good work, we should be thankful, of course, to them, but most importantly to the Lord. It's his work, and we see his promises being fulfilled in this. We see his protection, right? He's protecting us against people that would seek to divide us. There are people who want to undo your faith. The devil wants to devour the sheep of the Lord. He prowls around like a roaring lion, but the Lord protects his flock. We should be thankful to the Lord, and we should trust him and seek him. Those who are called to be leaders in his name must do this themselves, daily looking to him, not to their own strength and their own wisdom, but to Jesus, asking for his help, asking for his strength and work in their lives. And we also see, I'll I'll finish with this as you think about other things we've considered, the Lord's great grace in all of these things. I said I'd return uh, to verse 13, and I want to do this now. Despite all of the very strong words that he speaks against these, these teachers, these false teachers, notice what he says in verse 13, rebuke them sharply that what? They may be sound in the faith. Despite this awful characterization of them, which is true, There is still hope, even for these guys, for the legalists in the churches, the legalists in our own hearts. There's hope that that legalist will be silenced and instead will turn to the Lord Jesus, being sound in the faith, sound in trusting him, and speak truth instead of lies. Speak hope instead of death. Speak a word that actually produces the righteousness that they proclaim to want. It's amazing to me that I I, I love the fact that this is here. And it directs all of our hope, I think, and all of our lives, and certainly the work of the elders, that when we speak and when we rebuke, even sharply, that we remember that that it is for the purpose of grace, Yes, for the purpose of the protection of the flock, but perhaps this one too, even this one who is destroying and upsetting the church, will himself be turned to a child of God, 
will himself be turned to one who is sound in the faith and ready and able to proclaim. Paul himself is an amazing example of this. One who was formerly persecuting the church, uh, putting uh, and, and, and um, destroying and, and troubling, um, troubling the Christians, but now is sound in the faith and seeking the Lord and his will. If there's hope for them, there's hope for Paul, there's certainly hope for you and for me. This is God's good word to us. Even in his discipline of us, he loves us. Well, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your strong words to us. It's not always comfortable and it's not always fun. And sometimes when we are required to speak them to others, we, we fear and we tremble. We look at our own lives, um, our own hypocrisies, the own, our own ways in which we fail, and we wonder how can we ever declare something so strongly. But we remember that we declare not our own word, but yours. We declare not our own truths, but yours. And part of that truth is, of course, your work of discipline in our lives. You love us. You care for us. You shepherd us. You lead us to green pastures, to still waters, through the valley of the shadow of death, and you do it through the tools of your rod and your staff. Lord, we thank you for loving us, even though we were rebellious, detestable, disobedient, led astray by various passions. Despite these things, you loved us, you came to us, you put to death that which was earthly in us and has brought to life newness and, and hope and, and, and righteousness that flows from faith. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would make us not detestable but lovely, not disobedient but obeying, that you would make us children of God and zealous and ready for every good work, and that you would do this by strengthening our faith in you. We also pray, Lord, for the elders of our church and of, of every church we pray also for our future leaders, those that you are currently maturing and training and raising up. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would be watchful over those who are called to lead us, that you would um, strengthen their own faith and their own lives, and that you would give them wisdom when the church is under trial, persecution, and struggle. You would give them wisdom as they deal with each one of us individually and with the body as a whole. Watch over them, protect them, keep them, train them, discipline them, Lord. Let them be strong in the gospel and, uh, and in the, the um, works that you have called us to. Let them look to Christ um, each and every day and help us uh, to look to Christ as well. Lord Jesus, we thank you for being the head of our church. We thank you that through you, every uh, member of your body is, is knit together in love and is joined together properly, each in our own place, with our own gifts and our own callings. May we, may we uh, learn to work together well and properly and for the honor of your name, that others would see your work in us and would join us in worship and in service. We pray this in your most wonderful name thanking you for our salvation 
and looking forward to your return and the glories that lie ahead. Amen.